Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and my fellow video essayist, Tom Vanderlinden from Like Stories of Old, that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. You're listening to our very first episode. We figured we'd start with capital C Cinema, and that, of course, is the 2021 adaptation of Dune by Denis Villeneuve. So yeah, Thomas, what were your first impressions of the film? I am a huge fan of this movie. This is the kind of sci-fi that I crave. Mm -hmm. I think Denny is doing something that's particularly unique with science fiction. Blade Runner 2049 is one of my favorite sci-fi films of all time. Mm -hmm. I had pretty high expectations going into this movie, and uh, they were more or less fulfilled. I wouldn't say it's it's necessarily a perfect film. There's a small critiques I might have, but overall I was I was very excited to be watching it and thoroughly enjoyed myself. What about you? Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot too. Just one more question. What format did you see it in? Did you see it in IMAX? I saw it in not quite IMAX. It was mm-hmm. um, Regal's RPX, which is like, it's IMAX width, but it doesn't have the full height of IMAX aspect ratio. And it's also digital, it's not film. So I got to experience like the Dolby... Atomos sound, and it was a pretty big image, but unfortunately the closest real IMAX theater is like two hours from me, so I didn't mm. get to see it that way. And then I was I was able to watch it twice in theaters. Yeah, I did see it in IMAX the first time, actually. It's also a digital IMAX screen. We don't have, uh, I think, film theaters anymore in uh, the Netherlands. They're pretty rare. Yeah, it's all digital right now, but um, uh, yeah, I saw it once on in IMAX the first time, and the second time I saw it on a regular screen, and uh, yeah, it definitely was a film where, for me, the IMAX format elevated the material, like, significantly. Just the sort of visceral experience of the sound and the visuals. Like you said, I had some issues with the film, like, it wasn't perfect, but just as an experience, it was just stunning. So much to talk about. Did you read the original novel? The first one I read, I read the first book probably about a year, year and a half ago. So it wasn't super fresh in my mind, but, but Mm -hmm. I've read it fairly recently and I enjoyed the book a lot. So I, you know, definitely having read the book, I think is a interesting aspect of this discussion because it's a very faithful adaptation. I think you would probably agree. It it seems like that's the consensus. A lot of people agree that it's a very faithful adaptation of the book. Mm -hmm. So I think for people who have read the book, it's pretty satisfying experience to be able to go in there. You don't get a lot of those moments that you get sometimes when you're watching a book adaptation where it's like, oh, that's not quite right or that's weird. This was one of those rare cases where surprisingly, like so many things are really faithfully Mm -hmm. kind of transposed to screen, which is an incredibly impressive feat considering just how like expansive and complicated of a world it is but yeah what about you you I, you read the book as well i'm assuming yeah i read the first book and the second one uh i read them both after the film adaptation was announced so i already had sort of the casting in mind as i was reading the book for the first time sure so i didn't have the attachment to the story that some other people have who may have read it like years ago and had their own ideas of what an adaptation should look like so i kind of went into the book knowing I had seen the first trailer even, I think, so I kind of had like the visuals already, like I was projecting it onto the novel too. One of the things that I liked most about Villeneuve's adaptation is how he really took the time to explore like all these details and the little bits of world building. And it was a smart choice, I think, to sort of split the books into multiple parts. I think the Lynch adaptation showed that it's just not a novel that can be done in one single film. It just doesn't really work. Yeah, you can't do it in two hours. You had seen the Lynch version before this as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw it, I think, the first time like a few years ago, but I didn't even think it was like that bad. It was just very, uh, it was a little confusing and it didn't just, it didn't really grab me. So I pretty much forgotten about it. Yeah, yeah. I rewatched it again after I saw Villeneuve's film just as a, just to compare the two. And uh, some of the scenes are actually pretty similar. Like there's a lot of, sort of quote-unquote iconic moments in the book that are also there obviously in both films because you there are some scenes that you just cannot cut out i think yeah like the famous the, the hand in the box scene so yeah there's there's a lot of similarities but obviously the lynch version is much more rushed and it doesn't really 
connect you to the characters at all. Like I, that's an issue I also had a little bit with this adaptation. Yeah. But yeah, in the Lynch version, that's just magnified so much more. <laughs> yeah. The Lynch version is very much about maybe even more so than the Villeneuve version, although in a very different way, about like the setting and the environment mm-hmm. or just like the sets that he's making and the creatures and the like the world is very bizarre and very intricate mm-hmm. and very David Lynch and has this like campy feeling to it. That movie is kind of a special thing in its own right, but I, I don't think about that in very strong relation to the book. Like to me, mm-hmm. you know, that's a unique movie, but I don't think it's a very good adaptation of uh, that world or that's that story. Yeah. Which I don't think I'd expect anything more true from mm-hmm. David Lynch. Like he's gonna do his he's gonna do his own thing. Yeah. While we're talking about the book and stuff, we should talk about maybe spoilers for the story. Mm-hmm. So I think we kind of talked about this before. Obviously, there's stories for the first movie, which is only the first part of what'll be a two-part story. At least. Yeah. So there's going to be spoilers for that movie, the 2021 Dune Part 1. But we may also delve into talking about the book itself and maybe even beyond the first book. But we will try to give appropriate spoiler warnings Mm -hmm. before we get into any of that stuff. So if you've seen the first movie, there will be spoilers for that, but you'll be safe up until the point where we'll let you know if we're going to spoil anything from the book beyond what's in the first Mm -hmm. film. There are certain aspects of, I think, the characters and certain arcs and themes that we'll kind of have to get into. It would be hard Mm -hmm. to talk about without spoiling things since we've both read the the first book. So, But we'll we'll try to give you a warning. Mm -hmm. We're on the same page as far as this being a good adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that kind of like the David Lynch version, this version it sounded like you were saying left you feeling a little disconnected from the characters. Yeah, a little bit. But yeah, to be fair to both filmmakers, it's an issue that I had with the book as well, because uh, yes. if you read the first novel, especially the first half of the first novel, it's just so heavy on exposition and world building and politics and peoples and nations. And there's like hierarchies and there's a lot of stuff going on before you even get to the sort of archetypal hero's journey that's somewhere within it and yeah, sort of commented on also by uh, Frank Herbert. Uh, we'll get into that later, I think. But especially for the first film, I think this was the biggest challenge to overcome to set up this world and at the same time get people emotionally connected to it and i think the film for me at least it really succeeded in that first part like i'm genuinely hungry for more like i want to see how film nerve uh explores the rest of this world and the rest of this story and especially at the end of the film we sort of just we are just entering the the fremen culture and it'd be great to see like how exactly he gives shape to that but yeah. Uh, on a more emotional level, it wasn't quite like, let's say, a Star Wars or a Lord of the Rings, where yeah. I was thinking a lot about the Fellowship of the Rings in terms of how it ended, because it, it's like this strong, open-ended, like there's a character releva- revelation at the end, and then they sort of mm-hmm. walk off, and then we're continuing the journey in part two. But whereas in the Lord of the Rings, this was sort of like a big emotional climax after what was already like a really emotional journey. The, I think Dune is was a bit more like colder and less emotional. Yeah, yeah. I don't blame like Villeneuve for it because that's again an issue in the book as well. It's more like Game of Thrones in that sense. It's a bit more about politics and it's a yeah. bit more subversive of like traditional heroic stories and... In that sense, I really like it that we finally have like a grand scale sort of political science fiction epic on the scale of like a Lord of the Rings or a Star Wars, even though it's not entirely fair to compare the two based on their the sort of storytelling structures they have, because in that sense, they're just so different that it's, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's understandable that it's, it's a different experience. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think this is one of those weird cases where the film, the structure of the film and the way it handles its characters in this first part definitely has some issues. But I agree that those are all coming from the book. It's it's because mm-hmm. he's staying so true to the structure of the story that he runs into problems, I think. And so in a sense, this is a great illustration of how like sometimes to make a really good like film, you have to potentially make a less accurate adaptation. Mm-hmm. 
But it's like some people are going to be upset either way or you're going to have to compromise either way. The payoff for the setup, like this first part, I think is going to look better in hindsight through the light of the payoff of the second part. At least that's what I'm hoping. Mm -hmm. And so I think he may have made the right decision ultimately in like staying super close to everything. You're introducing so much material, like there's so many characters, there's so much world building to do. And in the film, he just doesn't have the time. You know, there's this whole betrayal that happens. Mm -hmm. And like you, the character of Dr. Yue, by the time he is betraying people in the movie, he's only really been on screen for two or three short scenes and hasn't had very many lines. And so there's not much emotionality to that betrayal in mm -hmm the book, but you've at least been able to spend more time with that character in the book Yeah, yeah. by the time things happen. And in the movie, you just don't get that. The challenge is like, I'm like, I don't know, but I don't know where you would have gotten that extra time to spend more time with those characters. Mm -hmm. Because unless you had made it into three films and like ended the first film with the destruction of Arakeen instead of like extending past, but then, you know, then you have three films on your hand and he already didn't know if he was going to be able to make two. So yeah. I think the, he made the best call that he could, mm -hmm. and I don't I don't blame Villeneuve, certainly. Yeah. You have to build up all these characters, mm -hmm. then burn like half of them to the ground, yeah. and then introduce a whole new set of characters and a whole nother world, and then the film ends. And there's just yeah. not enough time to like get invested in any of those people yeah. fully emotionally while it's yeah, happening. Yeah, that's, that's always the difficulty. Like you, It's easy to say, oh, they should have spent more time with, the, with them or with this, but then you have to cut something else out instead yes. of it unless you end up with an even longer film yeah but yeah the the ua betrayal that's that's one of the examples that's which is like a big like a whole subplot in the book yeah but that's reduced to sort of like one character moment in the film but that one actually i think it worked fine it didn't bother me as much because even though it's it's a pretty cool and interesting subplot in the book like in the end it's basically still the sort of betrayer archetype and yeah, yeah, it works well enough just in this reduced format. It's definitely not the most important part of the story. It is ultimately like that character's function is ultimately kind of a plot point in this larger project of just like setting things up so that you get Paul out mm -hmm. into the desert. And like you basically just have to have like a hour and a half long inciting mm -hmm. incident, but it is still the inciting incident. So it wouldn't make like too much sense to just like really linger there mm -hmm. for a long time unless you just have the luxury of like a 900 page book. Yeah, it's, it's strange because now it feels like the, the film has two sort of distinctive inciting moments. The first one being they're uh, sort of leaving their own home planet and arriving on Arrakis or Dune. And then the second one with their attack on the base and the sort of destruction of Paul's family and uh, family house. That's one issue I think where the film suffered the most as an adaptation. They In the book, there's like this whole time span that they have on the planet where they are sort of adapting to local life and adapting to the local politics. Whereas in the film, it's like they land and then they sleep over for one night and then right. they're attacked like this. Yeah, I think there's like two days in between those moments. So that's how you sort of end up with those two sort of inciting events sort of put together. And yeah, it's just it does make it feel like one big setup for something else. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about uh, some of the things maybe that like are slightly imperfect about it, but there's a mm -hmm. lot here that I think was really incredible. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the technical side of things, and then we'll get more into some of the themes that this this movie is exploring. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, one thing I was going to say is about the sort of choice for how to adapt the film or the book is that you, you can go the direction, as you said, like being less faithful to create a more interesting adaptation. Right, yes. But I liked, or create a more interesting film, but I kind of liked how Villeneuve chose to stay faithful, but then try to use like all the cinematic techniques to enhance every scene that wouldn't directly translate as well to film from the book. Like going back again to the, the sort of iconic scene with Paul sticking his hand in the box as the sort of test. Yeah. To me, that's like on the page, I thought that was like, a, it wasn't the most exciting scene for me like yeah, but I, yeah. it's one of those scenes that yeah you know it's it, you you have to put it in the in the film because it's such a iconic moment i, I was going to say important but i'm actually not sure like what it does for the plot specifically except for reveal the whole bene Gesserit plan for the, the sort of chosen one right yeah 
it's kind of the beginning of our suspicions that like there's something special about Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, but you wouldn't even necessarily need it necessarily. It's showing the connection to, like you said, the Benny, mm-hmm. the Benny Gesserit stuff. Yeah, that's one of the things like I in the book that's revealed much more subtly. Like they 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 spend like they arrive on Arrakis and then Paul is seen spending time there with like all the local characters. And then there's one moment in the film where he has his Fremen suit strapped on and then the I forget her character's name. Uh, kinds. Yeah. She's like, oh, you know how to put it on. And he, he's yeah. like, yeah, it seems uh, natural. And then, oh, he knows his ways right. as if they were the, his own. There's a, only one moment, I think, like that in the film. But there's a couple of them in the book. And it's only then that the Fremen start seeing Paul as the sort of messiah figure. Whereas in the film, yeah. they sort of chant it from the moment he steps on the planet, which I thought was a little strange. Like, could understand, like, did they plant it superstition? But it's like, did they hand out, like, pictures and stuff too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's sort of like, it's one of those moments where you kind of have to skip forward a little to get the plot going. Because yeah. it just, yeah. it does, even in the book, it just, it happens, like, just one too many times for it to become a little comical, almost. Like, right, Paul does right. something <laughs> accidental, and then there's, like, some Fremen, oh, like, oh, damn, he's, he's our messiah. <laughs> it's real now. I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> going back to that, the scene with the hand in the box, like, I like how Villeneuve, like, sort of invokes the imagery of, he uses a lot of visuals and the music to sort of communicate the early notions of that Paul might be something more important than he knows himself to be like and you can see that in a lot of the basically every moment is like sort of maximized in terms of visuals and audio like even the just the Bene Gesserit ship landing and them sort of arriving like in sort of the rain or in the in the wind and with the sort of it had that weird like the sort of choral voices in the music in this or in the soundtrack and then again, as the ship takes off, like it goes into this loud, like boastful musical moment. And the same again as they're leaving the planet and Paul sort of looks at the horizon, the sort of Luke Skywalker looking at the, the, the twin suns uh, scene. Yeah, I think that's one of the, especially in IMAX, that was one of the the great strengths of the music of, or of the film that it's it's not afraid to go like big and bold. And especially on the big screen, it just, it just works really well in uh, at least making it everything so much more visceral and just impactful even if it's not like as impactful on the page or yeah uh, in the script that's one of the things about the book to the film adaptation is that the book is very like interior there's a you get a lot of like the internal monologues and thoughts Mm -hmm. of the characters and besides the very little bit of voiceover that you get from chani at the beginning there's none in this book or in the film, despite the fact that, you know, it's a kind of important part of the book. But I think they do a good job of making up for that with a lot of sort of subjectivity and emotion in the music and just the visuals and mm-hmm. building out the world visually. And the music that you're talking about, I think one of the things I really loved about the score was how much world building that I think the score does, where it's mm-hmm. not just like, here's some music that adds emotionally to what you're seeing on screen but music that actually feels like it's coming from the the world itself like the female whispery chanting when the Benny Gesserit ship is mm-hmm. is taking off like to me it feels like not just a little bit of like a you know here let's pump up the intensity of this scene but it reminds me of like an actual like incantation that the Benny Gesserits have been performing for thousands of years yeah. you know on some distant planet that we're, you know, we're getting a glimpse of like as this is happening and it just expands the whole world out. Mm-hmm. It makes it feel so like alive and rich. And there's so many moments like that in this movie where you kind of encounter these little pieces of like the broader world mm-hmm. and you have this story that's happening on Arrakis and, you know, it's centered around for now, this one character mainly and his experience on this planet. But you get the sense that there's this much, much larger world and universe out there mm-hmm. that's suggested by not just the the really good like visual design of everything, but then like the music too. Like when yeah. we go to the to Getty Prime where the the Harkonnen's home planet and then also the the Sardaukar that scene where they're like, there's one little scene of the Sardaukar, yeah. but through the music and how they designed that whole world, I'm like, 
I could watch a whole movie just about these guys. Like yeah, with the the throat singing. It, yeah, the yeah the throat singing and like <laughs> the upside down. I didn't even notice it the first time I watched it, but when I rewatched it, I was like that is an incredibly hardcore arrangement they have where they have like all these guys upside down that are just kind of like bleeding into this Mm -hmm. trough and then they scoop up the blood and like i don't know that whole world each of those little worlds that we just sort of like glancingly touch as we go through this story feel very like rich and full Mm -hmm. and like they exist beyond the story and a lot of that is just it's not exposition. It's just like you're seeing little things on screen and you're hearing this stuff mm-hmm. that feels like it's part of a larger world. And so, yeah. yeah, I really, I think where, for me, where the movie is most successful, the story of Dune is a great story and we'll get into some of the themes and the characters and those aspects that make it really interesting. Mm-hmm. But to me, what really makes this movie special is like just the completeness with which Villeneuve is like realizing a world and how like live and real it feels. The only thing in in terms of music that I feel a little bit conflicted about is that it sort of it does kind of lack like uh, strong melodies. Like I remember like coming out of the theater thinking, oh, that was like a really cool soundtrack, but I couldn't like hum it anymore. Like yeah, yeah, it sort of melts into the whole experience, but it doesn't really stand that strongly. On its own, even though on second and even on third watch, it was like more obvious that there were like specific uh, like light motifs, like recurring mm-hmm. themes and like little pieces of music that sort of developed over the course of the film, especially sort of the theme of Paul, I think, which was this, I guess that's the main theme of this film. It's the one that sort of that plays at the end uh, in the, the big climax. It's the same theme we get at the very end and as they're leaving Caladan. Yeah, they're kind of like two variations of, Mm -hmm. and then that kind of follows Paul's journey, I think. Yeah, it's the sort of like ominous, messianic (laughs) promise of something that's going to happen in the future, but it's not exactly like a heroic theme. Yeah, it's a pretty epic theme, but it's a bit more ominous, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I thought what was interesting, uh, I couldn't find it on the soundtrack actually, but I saw it on YouTube as a sort of uh, people ripped it from the film and uploaded it as uh, an unreleased soundtrack. And that's the Duncan Idaho theme. Yes. He's the one character that I think gets a very explicit theme. Like you could argue that that thing we just talked about is Paul's theme, but it's not really tied to Paul super directly in the way we think about mm-hmm. a theme. Like it's not like it plays every time like Paul comes onto screen or like when Paul's introduced at the very beginning, if it's there, it's only kind of subtle. There's a few chords that are playing in like a weird way that end up developing kind of like into that, but it's it's not the super strong melody like associated with yeah, Paul. Yeah. But Duncan Idaho totally gets that like he gets this like four note, four or five note like yeah. melody that plays legitimately every time he comes onto screen except yeah, yeah. except for when he sacrifices himself fighting the Sardaukar in that tunnel. Mm-hmm. Yeah it ends up not playing his theme there. Yeah, I, I I liked how he had like the the one unambiguously heroic soundtrack every time yes. he saw he, he just had to enter the screen screen and it was <laughs> <laughs> and it was like these heroic horns blasting. Yeah. He deserved it too because uh the Duncan Idaho I don't remember his character being like super important to me when I read the book. Like obviously he's a central mm-hmm. character, but the way that Jason Momoa brings that character to life on screen is makes him just so like lovable and Mm -hmm. you instantly like understand why he's a super important character to paul Mm -hmm. just through i think you know his performance and yeah even in the book he is like the number one warrior in like the entire galaxy like he's known right everywhere as being the greatest fighter that's ever lived but I also like that he's sort of like, he is not just a, like a tool of, or like a weapon for violence. He is actually like in the book and in the film also, it's less explicitly so, but it's it's there in the film that he's he's also sent to the Fremen as a sort of diplomat first. Like, yeah. Uh, and he really is someone who also knows how to build bridges and be diplomatic. And you also see it in the scene where Paul's father uh, meets with sort of the leader of the Fremen and he spits on the table and... Right. And instead of being offended like Duncan, he's like, uh, no, 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 it's 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 a it's a sign of respect or like a, a token of trust. And he's sort of like the the social lubricant be- between the two houses. And 
uh, yeah, I, I, that's, I think it was a really cool character trait to add to what could otherwise be just like a sort of superficial warrior yeah. character who's just there to fight and be arrogant about it or something like that. Yeah, that type of character is a kind of like archetype that crops up mm -hmm. in a lot of these types of stories. The like older warrior type who's like training the the younger person, but it's a great version of that character. He really doesn't fall into a lot of the cliches that I think you expect from from that kind of character. Mm -hmm. And it'll probably become more obvious for people who haven't read the book as part two plays out. But the importance of like warriors in the Fremen culture and like being a good fighter becomes like mm -hmm. pretty significant. And so it makes it makes a lot of sense to why he ended up getting along so well with the Fremen because they respect basically anybody who's <laughs> a really badass fighter so <laughs> yeah i feel that was a bit more understated in the film that the fremen themselves are actually like really good fighters too they yeah yeah they're not like just people in the desert they actually like they know how to handle themselves and how to stand against uh, yeah. the enemies that they've been facing and so that's actually what i like about sort of we're getting sort of into sequel territory, but when, when sort of Paul meets with the Fremen, you get sort of, in the book at least, you know, like they're sort of melting together. It's, you know, that's going to be like a genuine fighting force. Like you have the, yeah. the House Atreides, which has some of the best fighters, even with after Duncan is gone, sort of like uh, Paul has been trained in his ways and uh, combined that with the Fremen, sort of the desert power, as it's referred to in the film, like you know, there's going to be like some form of reckoning and that's, yeah yeah i wonder I, I i'm really excited to see how that's gonna play out in the second film yeah i'm i'm very excited for the second film as well my favorite stuff from the first one is a lot of the stuff with the fremen mm, yeah i love javier bardem's version of stilgar i think it's mm -hmm. really great and i can't wait to see more those characters developed spending more time with uh the fremen and their culture and stuff in part two is going to be it's going to be a lot of fun mm -hmm. Well, I think, is there anything else you want to say about the more technical stuff before we move into kind of discussing deeper themes here? We didn't say anything about the way that, like, the voice is portrayed. Oh, yeah. Or Paul's visions. And I think the the voice specifically, I don't have much to say beyond that, beside, mm -hmm. about that beyond, I think he does a really good job of constructing that on screen where it becomes this very sort of subjective thing they visualized it and made it auditory in such a way that like you really get a sense of like how when paul is trying to do it like he's almost getting there but like not quite mm -hmm. they portray that in such a smart way visually where like you have these little cuts to the future and then it like snaps back yeah. into the present and stuff and i think it's also like when it's done to him by the uh benny Gesserit lady Yes, you see a sort of like it skips in time a little bit, like as, yeah. as if he goes unconscious for a moment, yeah. which I think is really interesting because that's exactly the voice sort of like it speaks not to you but to your unconscious mind, and so it's it's sort of like it, the film uh, reflects that by literally subverting yeah. the conscious presence to or your conscious awareness to sort of speak to you, interact with your unconscious directly, and sort of command it. Right. I actually yeah. went to see it in the, the first time I saw it in theater. I went with a friend who didn't know anything about Dune. He hadn't even seen the trailer. He didn't know the book. And he was like, oh, that's, they have Jedi mind tricks in this universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do think it's like, at the time it was probably like a cool thing, but now it's become like a little bit. Cliche, yeah. Like, yeah, we've like, we've seen it before and that's, it's an issue with some of the other aspects of dune yeah. as well like some of it feels dated even though the original novel was like what created the cliches that we right. know today <laughs> yeah. so that's yeah that's also one of the issues with adapting like an older classic like you have to account for the fact that it's been interpreted by different stories and sort of like it's evolved like over time and, and expanded into different interpretations and it's inspired like a whole body of work that's yeah yeah, made these that can feel make an original feel make make it redundant sort of. Yeah, Star Wars is probably one of the most influential, maybe influ most influential films of all time. Mm -hmm. Certainly one of the most influential sort of sci-fi fantasy 
you know, blockbusters. Star Wars, in a sense, is almost is almost like the original adaptation of Dune, I think, in kind of a mm-hmm. tongue-in-cheek way. I was reading a little bit in Frank Herbert's uh, biography that's written by his son. There was a little bit of like... I don't know if you I don't know if it was ever fully controversy at the time, but like when Star Wars came out, Frank Herbert was a little bit upset with George Lucas because mm. there's a lot of elements that in hindsight are kind of at least borrowed from Dune. Yeah. I don't think any of it would qualify as actual plagiarism because George Lucas like changes a lot. Mm-hmm. But you do have this sort of like messianic figure, yep. you have a weird force you know, that he Mm -hmm. can use. He's being trained. He lives on a desert planet. And then even in some of the other Star Wars films, Lucas starts getting into more of the political, the sociopolitical stuff. And a Mm -hmm. lot of that is just like Dune was the origin of all of that. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's like poetry. It it rhymes. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder if he's seen the Tremors. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is probably the closest... (laughs) Yeah. thing to a Dune film that a we had Dune. before, aside from yeah. the literal Dune adaptations. <laughs> <laughs> the way he handled those elements, you know, in spite of the fact that they've become a, a little cliche, he did as, as best as you mm-hmm. really could. I liked, too, how they handled Paul's visions, where, like, I think that could have been a lot more heavy-handed in a sense, where in the book it's a lot more explicit about what he's seeing and this idea that he's kind of like seeing multiple potential futures Mm -hmm. uh, that aren't really, they don't necessarily all come true or uh, there's very much this feeling of like, as he makes decisions, it leads him towards one future, not the other, or different futures become more vibrant kind of in Paul's mind as mm-hmm. he makes decisions they might develop that more in part two but they keep that a lot of that like fairly it's there like he's seeing stuff in the film that then doesn't end up happening like when he fights the guy at the very end he sees himself dying yeah yeah and then he that obviously isn't what happens he ends up defeating the guy so you get a sense of like he's seeing these things that maybe aren't for sure going to happen mm-hmm. but i love that they played that very subtly it easily could have become a mess if you had tried to like over clarify that stuff in exposition yeah i like because it's it's really these sort of unconscious images that sort of are like ambiguous in their meaning and implications yeah it, it, it kind of goes back to like the very first line uh, like before even the 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 studio logos you hear this uh, Sardukar, uh, sort of the, the language of theirs, and it says, uh, uh, I think it was something like, "Dreams are messages from the deep." Yes, yeah. So it's like to me, that's like sort of the, the obvious clarification from, like, yeah, like you have these dreams, you have these visions, and it's sort of like it's coming from like deep within the mind, and you can't directly translate it into like conscious imagery or like with with like clear meanings. Yeah. I think he even says it in the film somewhere that he sees like the knife, but he doesn't know what its purpose is or does he hand it to someone or is it handed to him and right, who, right. Who, does, who does it? And you have some images that are sort, sort of translated literally like Chani's, the vision of Chani at the end that becomes like a literal sort of snapshot that he had as like a sort of future vision. But then there's also the moment where in his vision, he is killed by Jamis, the Fremen warrior that he duels with at the end. But that's sort of, at least in in hindsight to me, it was more sort of like a symbolical vision of how the sort of the Paul, the young Paul, like the the, the Kaladin Paul, he sort of dies in that moment. And he sort yes. of embraces his new identity as this potential messiah for the Fremen people and for perhaps even like the galaxy as a whole. Like he speaks out his intention to overthrow the emperor at one point in the film by marrying the daughter, I think. At least that's in the way in the book, like the emperor, uh, he has daughters, but he has no sons. So he has to, yeah. to get a successor like someone has to marry into that family and Paul thinks that could be him so yeah that that sort of brings us to more like the thematic stuff yeah um like because yeah the visions are like strongly related to Paul's journey and sort of the purpose of his character arc yeah and I think the sort of ambiguity uh really plays into like Paul being uncertain about what his future 
path is, even though like it's been sort of said, he has been sort of manufactured into a chosen one by the Bene Gesserit, both right. by their sort of thousands year long eugenics program to create this perfect Kwisatz Haderach, I think it's called, yeah. like this perfect being that has a mind that transcends time and space. And then sort of by uh, planting the, the superstition among the Fremen to sort of make them see Paul as the chosen one. And I think that's also coming back to what you said earlier about Paul's theme, that it's not exactly his theme. If anything, it's the theme of the chosen one. Like, right. it's, the, it's a yeah. sort of nebulous messiah figure that Paul comes to embody or chooses to embrace at the end, even though he knows it's, it's not like a divine destiny that's granted to him. It's like a sort of malicious artificiality created by these Bene Gesserit peoples. Yeah. And we start to get a sense of that in the first film, and probably soon here we'll cross over into maybe talking about some things that are only in the book and aren't in part one yet. But even in part one, mm -hmm. you get this sense of like, he knows about that plan. Mm -hmm. You know, he overhears the conversation with his mother and Charlotte Rampling's character, I forget her name. Mm -hmm. He knows that the Bene Gesserit are planting those things. But then like, as he starts to have experiences that are like kind of maybe not confirming, but he's he's having to grapple with this, like, oh, I'm having this mm -hmm. experience or I'm having these abilities that maybe would suggest I am some kind of yeah. or something special about me that comes on him, not like, oh, wow, my destiny is fulfilled. I finally have a feeling of purpose. Like everything is clear mm -hmm. to me. It's like it's like painful and he's like resisting it, having a really hard time, like coming to terms with that, you know, like when he's in the yeah. tent, the still tent with his yeah, mom yeah, is yeah. like really bothered by it. It's not yeah. like he's frightened, like, uh, yes, like yeah. terrified of like it's, in the book, it's described as a, a terrible purpose like that he has. Yeah. But it's even further complicated because even in the context of that plan, he doesn't exactly fit into it because uh, the lady Jessica, she wasn't supposed to have Paul in the beginning, like she was supposed to have a daughter. Right. Which apparently is a choice they have at, in, at that point. And then only generations later, like they were gonna try and bring forth that chosen one. But right. so sort of Paul sort of throws a wrench into that plan as well. Like this plan that's been running for like ages or even millennia. Yeah. For me, at least, I thought it was so much more interesting that even if he would embrace like his role, like he wouldn't be fit for it. Like he, right, right. He doesn't, it's not a perfect fit. He, even if he was, they tried to design a chosen one, they sort of like stumbled and <laughs> right. failed a little bit. So, <laughs> yeah. The whole subtext of that first box scene is like they're testing him because they're like, oh, mm -hmm. he might have too much power, but not enough control. And if that's mm -hmm. the case, we would need to kill him. Yeah. It's kind of the subtext there. Like we would have to kill him because, you know, we don't know what could happen with this power oh yeah what do you think like exactly that paul demonstrated to the woman in that scene like what were the sort of like character traits that he that sort of came out of that moment to some degree i think it's it's an element of control over over what i'm not sure exactly fear among others maybe i don't really remember how it reads in the book mm-hmm you know, the way it's kind of presented in the film is Paul almost invokes a connection to something mm -hmm. that I think is like there in the soundtrack where you have this kind of like you have sounds representing the pain. Mm -hmm. But then as he, he starts to like build defiance, a sound comes in that it sort of ends up later connecting him to like the desert and things like that. And there's almost this element in that scene, too, where it's almost like she becomes afraid of him a little bit. And like backs off because like, yeah, 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 he's becoming too like his power is almost growing, like the mm -hmm. more he resists the pain or whatever. Yeah, there's a definite like display of power from yes. Paul's side. Like he shows at first like fear and pain and sort of frustration. And then it sort of turns into this uh, sort of control. Like this, right. he's, he, he suddenly appears very like like sort of confident or even dominant almost in the interaction, like as if he's the one who's going to overpower her in some way. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And as you said, yeah, the music carries a lot of weight in that scene, I think, by sort of, I think it opens the door to like suggesting that Paul, even though he doesn't fit into their plan exactly, he does, Right. he is imbued with some degree of power that's yeah. perhaps makes him... Especially because, as you said, he isn't supposed to be 
having those powers so that he might be dangerous to them right or to their entire plan it's a strange scene from just the perspective of like what it how the relation between the characters in that scene yeah sort of evolves yeah i think it's maybe easy to read the benny Gesserit as being like more in control than maybe they are and i haven't read the books beyond the first one so i don't know how things really pan out mm-hmm. But it reminds me a lot of Lord of the Rings in that way, where you have this like these forces that are sort of beyond the control of any one group in the story. Mm-hmm. But they're they're all trying to like wield their power in a certain way. And the Bene Gesserit are like using these very subversive tactics to try to like channel power and like build this messiah and do these things. They're producing it, quote unquote, and they're like trying to manipulate the situation to have a specific mm-hmm. outcome. But the power's real. It's almost like they don't have full control over it. Like it doesn't start and end with the Bene Gesserit, mm-hmm. even though they certainly play a role in, you know, how it progresses. Yeah. A big part of, I think, what makes the story like a much more interesting, I don't know if you would call it philosophical, but in terms of how it's speaking to reality, life, you know, our world Mm -hmm. and not just the world of Dune is that idea of like groups of people or institutions trying to like wield or construct power, religion, all these things and trying to like build messiahs and the extent to which institutions can have an influencing force in like manufacturing something. But then if you build up a messiah, there's almost a power to that in the world that Mm -hmm. the institution that birthed it may not necessarily have like control of. Yeah, yeah. Not necessarily in like a magical metaphysical sense, but Mm -hmm. we see those kinds of things, I think, in our own world where sort of the institution that maybe gave birth to something loses control of of it or or it's working on some kind of psychological archetypal level beyond what they may have intended or been able to understand. Yeah, it's a very political issue too. Like it's, it's, I think it really also plays into the sort of hubris that we have in trying to use total manipulation to bring about some version of paradise because the ultimately the purpose of bringing forth the messiah is that the messiah can sort of bring everyone together and create this ultimate paradise and a sort of yeah. end of history moment and i haven't read all the books but they do play like an important part in i think in up until the last one uh, i've read summaries and they definitely like not evil, but certainly like to some extent a sort of tyrannical force almost that they sort of, mm-hmm. even when you have these good intentions to bring about like something perfect and beautiful and steady and harmonious, like there's a good chance you'll end up being just like a tyrant. And yeah, yeah. So perhaps we should at the very least question also those intentions and yeah. be more suspicious of people trying to promise us like something that seems too good to be true. Right. Yeah. I'm glad that this story is out there and being explored in film because mm-hmm. like it that was a big part of what I I liked about the story arc of Game of Thrones. We probably shouldn't get into that, but how it was portrayed got so butchered towards the end that people upset about it or didn't like it or whatever but that core story of like a sort of messianic figure that Mm -hmm. ends up maybe not being everything they've promised is i think a very interesting one to examine i think that's the main difference between dune and star wars because whereas star wars is like this uncritical embodiment almost of the heroic journey as conceptualized by joseph campbell like we have the character who goes on an adventure and then he becomes like the master of two worlds and returns home as a a complete hero like an an unambiguous heroic figure that does good to the world and leaves everything better than he found it yeah whereas in dune that sort of cycle is specifically critiqued like from the very beginning by setting up paul's sort of destiny as uh, a chosen one as this sort of political act almost it's not like something that's embedded in the heart of Luke Skywalker or something like that. He's not like chosen by some divine higher force. It's like it's within the the whole heroic journey, like in Dune, it exists within the realm of that world. It isn't bestowed from something higher that's uh, outside of our experience. In that sense, actually, I think Paul is more, his journey rings closer to that of Darth Vader. Yes. I think his prequels are obviously sort of 
butchered by George Lucas. Mm -hmm. The themes that it explores of like Anakin as sort of a chosen one and then mm -hmm. the path that he takes. Ultimately, like I don't like those movies as movies as much, but that story arc is like almost more interesting to me than the one that Luke takes. Yeah, I think in the in the original. Yeah, I think the mistake there in with Darth Vader's journey is that there's this clear uh, sort of moment where the character turns evil, quote unquote. Right. Like, uh, yes. Because I don't think it's necessarily an issue of like becoming a, a tyrant like that. It's not necessarily an issue of becoming evil. I think it's more. Right an issue of becoming grandiose like or yes. becoming like consumed by hubris and yeah it doesn't necessarily have to have this explicit moment where oh now i'm gonna yeah. kill civilians or something like that or now i'm convinced the means justify the end so i'm now going to use horrible means like yeah and i like how in the books of dune that's really it stays sort of subtle. Paul, in that sense he isn't like darth vader he doesn't become like an evil character but he does become like a sort of grandiose one. I think that's also the main message in the first film, yeah. which is a really, it's a complicated one to portray because I see people like interpret it in like completely opposite directions. I saw someone pointing out that, which is a really interesting point is that Paul should be like the perfect hero because he has, he came from a system or like a perfect environment or like a perfectly supportive environment. He had like a loving father and who is like, mentoring him he had like the best warrior in the world like mentoring him then he yeah. had his mom like teaching him the ways of the Bene Gesserit like which is in, in a whole other skill set so yet from all angles he was like given support he was given skills he was given knowledge so he should be on paper like makes sense that he becomes like a great human being by yeah yeah by all accords like he should be like a hero he should be like wise and but I think that's maybe also sort of his if you see the story as a tragedy and in a tragedy, like the classic tragedy is a hero who has like a fatal flaw that makes him feel his heroic purpose, despite him having good intentions. And I think that's sort of the case with Paul, that he maybe he is sort of overconfident in his abilities. Like he sort of sees through, or at least he thinks he sees through the Bene Gesserit plan and sort of feels like he is confident enough. Like, okay, I can see like I'm being embraced by the Fremen for yeah. who I am not. Like for, they yeah. see me as this figure, but maybe I can like play along and sort of guide it into a different direction. I think yeah. that's his main sort of journey in the first film. Like, as you said, like in the, with that scene in the tent, he sort of struggles with his purpose and who he should be. And he is obviously haunted by these visions and these images of like a holy war that's coming in the future that he is, a, or that he literally is uh, the cause of. And it's obviously not like a heroic moment that he embraces that role that leads to those visions or right. leads to the realization of those visions. Yeah. That he embraces it anyway. It is such an interesting counterpoint to Darth Vader, like you were talking about earlier, where mm -hmm. It isn't a moment where he goes, okay, I'm joining the dark side. He almost like deludes himself into thinking like he can embrace this power mm -hmm. and keep it from corrupting him. And there's in Star Wars, there may, we can almost maintain this idea that like, oh, if Darth Vader just had stronger will in himself, he could have wielded his power for good instead of evil. Mm -hmm. And in Dune, we're, we don't really get that there's very much the sense of inevitability that it's like it is embracing the power that corrupts paul in a sense he thinks he can get away with it like at least early on yeah yeah and so he you know he thinks he's going to be fine and going to be able to sort of control events enough that he can take the power and do with it what he wants and avoid these other things that he sees coming that are bad and I guess in part two, we'll find out if that happens or not. <laughs> it's also worth noting that the original Dune novel was loosely inspired by uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, yes. Which was yeah. also this sort of real life figure, like a white man going into like a desert tribe, thinking yeah. he can sort of help the re revolution, like help turn things around for the better and slowly becoming disillusioned by not only like the role he plays into it, but also like is the question of is he, is he actually helping to make things better or is he just like corrupting himself with his own grandiosity and in doing yeah. so sort of hurting the world around him. Yeah. It, it's clear that that's one of the basic questions I think in Dune as well. 
Villeneuve even said in an interview that what connected him to the story is that he saw Paul as this sort of well-intentioned person who did have like heroic aspirations and he sort of finds a place into another culture like he finds a new home in a different peoples but then despite his best intentions ends up causing like some suffering anyways like he yeah yeah he isn't able to sort of bring together in some harmonious way like his own being and this this other culture that he wants to elevate or wants to help or wants to be a part of and then he sort of harms it anyways yeah there's so many fantastic thematic elements of the story in the introduction to The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. She talks about science fiction as a commentary on the present rather than the future, mm -hmm. which is something I think is true of a lot of sci-fi, whether the author kind of intends that or not. But I think it's especially true of Dune. And if you look at a lot of aspects of the book that are also revealed in the film, I think that's very apparent where you have like nations outside nations warring over this incredibly valuable resource that's in this desert i think frank herbert talked about explicitly like that being informed by countries warring over the middle east and oil mm -hmm. he started out as an ecologist examining like dune ecology and desert ecology and those kinds of things and that all informs the book climate you know ideas of climate change e even though mm -hmm. the our current conception of climate change didn't exist in its current form back when Frank Herbert was writing. You can still sense an awareness of some of those themes. And then also like the spice, Herbert was kind of writing at the cusp of the first wave of this psychedelic revolution going into the 60s. And people were mm -hmm. starting to experiment with mushrooms and LSD and these psychedelics. And that mm -hmm. was informing things and thematically plays yeah. a role with spice and all of, all of this stuff. And you've already mentioned like sort of the colonial aspect of like someone coming mm -hmm. in and trying to fix or like help this yeah, area yeah. and that sort of going awry. There's so much going on here. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the first part just kind of sets the stage and sort of like mm -hmm. touches a bunch of those different things but doesn't really get yeah. to like fully dive into it completely yet. Yeah, so. exactly. I had a quote written down from Villeneuve in an interview where he pretty much said exactly that. I think it was a recent interview, but he said like, part two will be such a cinematic treat. Making part one for me was just to set the table, you know, and to explain the cultures and the background of all the different planets and civilizations. And then to have that chance now that everything is set, part two will just be an amazing playground. It will be so fun to do. And... I can totally believe that, yeah. Yes. So hopefully in a year, we'll be back here discussing part two. And I have high hopes. Yeah. I can even see it becoming a trilogy, like with part two finishing the remainder of the first book. And yes. then yeah. maybe have a third film doing the Dune Messiah, the second book, yeah. without spoiling too much. Like Dune, the first two books, they sort of wrap up Paul's journey like after that it becomes the third book is called children of dune and so it, it yeah as the title suggests it's, it's centered around the children and so i think you can there's many more books and right but i and they sort of start to retread the same thematic cycles uh, and they get weirder as they go along <laughs> at some point like i think one of paul's children merges with a sandworm and he becomes like <laughs> the book is called god emperor of dune and that's literally what he becomes he becomes a basically immortal sandworm human hybrid that lives on and reigns for uh, like thousands of years and <laughs> so i'm guessing villeneuve is ready to like wrap it up before before it, it gets, gets to there. that book yeah. <laughs> yeah but even in the second in the second half of the first book there's a lot of things that i'm like i'm really curious how he's gonna tackle it because there's a yeah. lot of like, there's some part some elements to it that just become like a bit strange like spoiler warning for like the second half of the first book obviously that's the big part where Lady Jessica also has a sort of spice-induced, I don't know, even remember exactly what it is, like a, some sort of ritual where because she's pregnant, her child sort of is born fully conscious, like the, the child is born with an adult mind and that becomes uh, Paul's sister. And then you yeah. have this, even in the book, it's strange, but you can sort of, you can get away with a thing like that in a book, like, but in right. a movie when you have like this infant child, like, Speaking like an adult. <laughs> yeah, acting like an adult, 
that obviously has to be fed lines by an adult writer. I'm not. I don't think that's ever translated well to yeah. to film or like a TV show. Yeah. So I'm really curious how he's going to tackle that. It'll be it'll be interesting to see. But he showed with part one that like he has a knack for bringing things to screen in an accurate but yet somehow like uncampy way. The way he translates the Baron. Mm-hmm. With his huge size, oh, his yeah. like flow, his sort of floating device that like holds him up, and like he does yeah. that, and like it would be so easy for that to look goofy on screen. Mm-hmm. And even when I read the book, it's funny even in the book because it like talks about like mm-hmm. devices like holding up his flabs of uh, fat basically, yeah. and but he managed to translate to that that to screen in a way that seems to work and like doesn't doesn't break my immersion. I also like how he doesn't explain it all. There's there's yes. no line whatsoever addressing like um, oh that's the baron he's right. he has these anti-gravity things that are holding his weight yeah. from plunging to the ground. <laughs> there's a lot of great stuff like that like the the um the fact that computers have been outlawed and so you have these human computers calculating mm-hmm. things the mentats they don't touch on that in exposition but you just see you kind of see that you know there's mm-hmm. like two places where the mentats sort of like roll their eyes back into their head and then mm-hmm. you know spew some kind of and so it's there <laughs> i feel like there's so much stuff that we still haven't talked about like, yeah the one thing i did miss from i think that was a, a point in the book where the Baron is not just shown as like physically overweight, but also shown to be like a waster of water, which oh, yeah. on the desert planet would be much more significant than him eating a lot. Yeah. I, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's that's one thing that I, I think he could have pushed a bit further, like the sort of show the desperation and the absolute importance of water on yeah. the desert planet. Like the Fremen in the book are described as basically these sort of dried out prunish people that are right. <laughs> absolutely like dehydrated like all the time. <laughs> yeah. Which of course in that it's rare for films to actually do something like that. They're always gonna cast like the pretty people and in the end. Although it, they did show like I think they sh- they emphasize it enough. It's just one of those little things like like at least show me like the the dry skin, the, the cracked li- lips and that sort yeah. of stuff. But I agree. Some there was there were some moments where I was like, I wanted it to seem a little bit like hotter. Mm-hmm. Like Paul almost takes the heat of the desert like a little too in stride. I love how sandy everything felt. Like they did a really great job of making mm. like everything feel like it was coated in dust and sand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the yeah the the element of the heat was maybe underplayed in a few places. Yeah, it's it's. I liked how he tried to do less conventional ways instead of like uh, drenching everyone in sweat and right. just having a yellow filter over everything yeah. to show the heat because that's the sort of thing about desert heat. It's that you don't sweat because it's just way too dry. Yeah. If you want to be stay true to like the ecology of things, then you can't really go in that direction. But at the same time, I was like, not caught off guard, but like a little, it felt strange to see Paul in the beginning, like strolling around in the midst of the yeah. midst of the day. Even though earlier, like they, they, I liked how they showed like the desert of, or the city itself is like this big fortress and everything is like, and, and you see these windows, the sort of walls closing in to sort of, because the sun is getting too hot. And I thought that was a great moment to show like the importance of like shielding themselves from the sun. Yeah. yeah. Last summer I was in uh, Southern France and during a heat wave and then you see like the, the traditional houses there, they have like really thick walls and to my surprise, like it actually helps. It helps. It's it's like the best isolation to have. Like it's, it's a really simple but effective way to sort of shield yourself from the sun and the heat, and yeah. just have thick walls, no windows, and you're probably safe. And I liked how you saw that sort of element in the city design of uh, Dune. Yeah. But then it's it, it was undercut a little with Paul just <laughs> just kind of waltzing across the courtyard. Yeah. I was hoping like it would have some payoff like that that was a sign of him being naive like not being aware of like what the heat would do to him and then yeah end up dehydrated or something but they kind of missed out on that a little bit yeah i don't think that was in the book actually but i might be misremembering it the the he encounters like the the sort of gardener who's like giving water to the trees like and yes yeah, I don't remember if that was in the book or not. I think I think it's maybe not. I think they might have. I don't think it was in the book either because it, they really hammered 
in the book it's constantly emphasizing like the functional need for the use of water but i do like how in the film it sort of hints at that there's like something more important in like spiritual or like uh, cultural terms that it, it warrants the sort of sacrifice of water yeah it kind of prefaces water having like almost like a spiritual quality for the fremen mm -hmm. which they don't really get into much in the film but maybe they will more in in part two but it takes on this like almost metaphysical significance uh to them mm -hmm. yeah in the way we would think about blood almost which they they kind of nod to a little bit when like um dr kynes is stabbed from behind by a, a sardaukar water shoots out of her suit instead of blood oh yeah just kind of yeah. a, a nice like symbolic yeah like like having water is the sign of life and losing yes. water is death yeah. yeah oh yeah i didn't even think of that good one it's also a good way to keep the things pg keep <laughs> yeah. things pg-13 and dodge the r rating like when the um the harkonnen are coming through and like beheading people there's very there's very mm. well-timed flames licking up in the foreground as that's happening. oh yeah 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 it was kind of, it was surprisingly restrained in a lot of those combat scenes where yeah. also the big sort of standoff with halle gurney against the sort of Harkonnen slash Sardaukar forces they sort of charge into each other right. the bagpipes and then there's like an explosion and it's yeah it's over like and the fate of his characters is also left unresolved spoilers again for the second part of the book but he you know he sort of he survives and comes back later so that will be interesting yeah I think a lot of those things ultimately it just comes down to the limitations of production and budget and mm -hmm. Denny went into making this without a guarantee for even a second film mm -hmm. and so i think there's a lot here that was just like did the best he could with the resources that he had keeping it pg-13 uh was mm -hmm. probably part of getting the budget that they needed for for the film it didn't help too that he was coming off of blade runner 2049 which didn't do that well financially and i think you know the r rating mm -hmm. may have played a role in that yeah, i wanted to extend like it is true that that the sequel was so uncertain like after uh, making the first part of Dune like it does feel like if this film would like be the only one it would be such a yeah cinematic tragedy almost like I can't imagine like I, I can't imagine them having greenlit this film mm -hmm. knowing they're not maybe not be a sequel like I, I, I would have expected the studio to push for like a more sort of a film that sort of wraps things up like a little bit more neatly or, yeah more if there wasn't going to be yeah in case there wasn't going to be a sequel but yeah I agree. I think it was probably it was probably a technicality. Like I think the way mm -hmm. he talked about it, it made it sound like there was maybe almost sort of like a handshake deal of like, mm -hmm. yeah, we'll we'll give you two parts, but they didn't necessarily sign the paperwork to go ahead and mm -hmm. just make two at one go. They announced that they were doing a part two so quickly that I think there probably wasn't much thinking to do about it. It was I'm sure whoever the executives were probably just had like a minimum like baseline in their mind for like if the first one hits this level then mm -hmm. we'll do a second i can imagine like the pandemic having actually worked in dune's favor because like the box office earnings are so like yeah messed up right now and this sort of like unpredictable and this sort of i think a lot of studios are cutting their losses anyways and so with like it had a decent critical and audience response like i think well enough and it even performed like pretty well at the box office but yeah especially now that it's also streaming and there's a lot of word of mouth and a lot of people have seen it i think that's when the sequel comes like it will have benefited from like more people being familiar with and excited about this story and where it's going yeah hopefully I'm excited about the possibility too of like these movies being out there and if they're successful the way they might influence sci-fi into the future because I think mm -hmm. there's a few other people you have like uh Alex Garland yeah you have a few other people who are doing like really kind of serious like mm -hmm. adult science fiction and you know you could kind of say that about like like Tenant or like some of Nolan's stuff although I don't see that as like primarily science fiction in the same way that something like Dune or Alex Garland's stuff is but I like that somebody's out there as kind of a counterpoint to a lot of the fun the fun science fiction that we get which is great there's nothing wrong with that but a very just like playing it straight here's a here's a very serious adult science fiction epic fantasy worlds yeah science fiction epic yeah if this shows studios that 
people like that kind of stuff, then hopefully we'll get more of it in the mm-hmm. future. Yeah, I think it would be especially cool also because some people have argued like maybe it w- would have worked better as a TV series like, like right. Game of Thrones. Yeah. And I think you could make an argument for that, like in terms of storytelling. But I think to have like this kind of story on this kind of scale, like yeah. that's really something special too. And that's what we don't get to see a lot. So yeah. the way... I view Dune Part 1 depends on how Dune Part 2 and potentially Part 3 are going to turn out. I think if it's sort of like, yeah, as we said, like the first, it's Part 1 and it a lot of this is just in servitude of like what's to come. Like it's right. a lot of Part 1 is setting up future films and that's kind of like my, uh, I don't, I don't, I can see it like not being my favorite film of if there are two or three, like I Right. Probably think like people are going to like the sequels better. Unlike, let's say, Lord of the Rings, where I think the first one has a distinct charm that works like as a standalone story in itself yeah. before like the story gets like more serious and not convoluted, but like more complicated towards the end. In that sense, Dune is sort of like the reversal. It starts like with all the exposition and the sort of not boring, but like not the most exciting parts. Yeah. And then it's sort of. Now the doors open for the fun stuff to come. Like yeah, now we're yeah. gonna ride the worms and do the battles and <laughs> get all the cool spice visions and yeah. <laughs> conquer the universe. Yes, I definitely agree that I think the best the best is uh, is yet to come. So mm-hmm. probably a good place to uh, wrap up our first discussion. Mm-hmm. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check us out on our creator-owned streaming service, Nebula, where you can listen to all of our episodes a week early. Right now, the best way you can get access to Nebula is by signing up for Curiosity Stream, which comes with a free Nebula subscription. To learn more about that, just follow the link in the show notes, and we'll see you again next time.